Hey, you again. It's good to see you. I got, I'm going to be honest, straight up from the front, I'm really excited to share this word with you this morning. I'm just, I'm really excited, but I got, I got to wonder, are you, are you ready to hear it? Really? Because there's a difference between being here and then actually being present. Wouldn't you agree? This is 1045. Y'all are usually rowdy. You rowdy this morning? It's like we need to break the ice because I have a feeling there's going to be some places in this message where you're going to want to make some noise. That's not really normal for us, right? You're going to want to say amen. So let's just get a practice amen. Can we do that real quick? Give me an amen on one, two, three. Amen. That was good. Let's try this one. Give me a whoop. All right, don't do that during the sermon. It'd be weird. Let's just not do that. I throw me off. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Ruth chapter four. This morning, we're going to wrap up this Ruth series. It's been a pretty powerful series, right? Grace, Marie, and Trevor had some really, really strong words. Usually, you're, you are really excited to get up here, and I am, but at the same time, I'm kind of nervous. you got to follow up two sermons like that. We're in Ruth chapter four. Now, there is uh, something I've noticed when it comes to stories, and that is this, is that how a story ends is really what determines how a story is remembered. I'll say that again in case you didn't catch it. But how a story ends is really what determines how a story is remembered. This is certainly true of like the movies that we watch, right? When it comes to these movies, sort of how you remember the movie really has everything to do with, with how the movie ended. Like you, you could be watching a movie, let's be honest, like it's, it's, it's just got you like hooked. You're engaged. You're leaned in. You're interested. You know, you want to know what's going on. But then all of a sudden the ending just sort of happens, Right? It happens too fast, where, where it comes out of nowhere, and it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the movie. And that impacts how you remember the film. If somebody asks you, so, how was that movie? But like, it was all right. It was okay. It was all right. right? The, the opposite of that is true, though, too. Right? If you're watching a movie, and it's kind of boring. It's kind of slow. You're not really into it. But then all of a sudden, it has like this incredible ending that impacts how you remember the film. In fact, it might even change the way you felt about the, the beginning and the middle. Somebody asks you how the movie was. Oh, it was amazing. It's incredible. It's great, right? This is certainly true of some of our most beloved movies. Like take, for instance, It's a Wonderful Life. Who loves that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Top three movies of all time. If you've never seen it, have Christmas in July. Go home and watch the movie, okay? Now, that entire movie is, is awesome. Great storytelling. Great, great film. But the end of that movie, whoo, that's when the tears come, right? I'm telling you, I probably watched that movie 25 times. Every single time I get to the end of that movie, I don't just like shed a little, t I ugly cry at the end of that movie every single, who else, right? The end of the film is where the waterworks come. Imagine that movie without the ending though. Like, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Maybe I will, but you know, what if at the end of that film, nobody shows up, right? And, and he loses everything. That would change the way you felt about the film. And you sure, certainly shouldn't call it a wonderful life. It's like, it's okay life, right? It's a kind of predictable life, whatever it is. Or take like Lord of the Rings. Where am I in the closet Lord of the Rings fans? Come on, nerds, unite. I am, a, I am a Lord of the Rings junkie, okay? Imagine if that movie didn't end the way that it did. Like what if Frodo got to Mount Doom? Like, I'm such a geek, right? What if he gets there and he doesn't destroy the ring, said the bad guys get the ring and they end up winning? How would you feel? I'd be angry. Those movies are long. It's like I spent half my life watching these movies for this, right? You'd be angry, right? So you, you're, you're following me here. Like how a story ends is really what determines how a story is remembered. If you're just now joining us, we're, we've been in this series on the book of Ruth, and man, it's a short little book, but it's so compelling, it's so powerful, and I'd argue one of the reasons why is because of the way that the book ends. It's a great ending. I mean, the story starts with famine and death, 
and despair, but the story ends with abundance, new life, and hope. So this morning, I want to talk about great endings. I really want us to zoom in on how this story gets wrapped up, and I want us to pay special attention to this character, Boaz, because Boaz really is the one through whom this great ending comes about. But first, a bit of recap. For those of you who haven't been with us, maybe you're not familiar with the book of Ruth. I don't want to assume anything. And so here's kind of how it goes. Here's the whole book in like two and a half, maybe four minutes. We'll see, right? But the story opens with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. They leave the land of Israel because there's famine there. They leave Israel. They go and they settle in this land called Moab. And, And while they're there, they bring their two sons along with them. And while they're there, not long after they arrive... Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. And so Naomi's two sons, they go and they marry Moabite women. One woman named Ruth, another named Orpah. And then not long after they're married, the two sons die and leave Naomi in this desolate situation. I mean, in, in that day and age, this is about as bad as it gets. She's in a desperate place. And she even, she, she's real honest with how she's doing, right? Her name's Naomi, but she changes her name to Mara. Mara means bitter. So that's the kind of, kind of place she is emotionally. But still, somehow, she has caught word that God is being faithful to the Israelites, to, to his people in Israel. So she decides, as desperate as her situation is, as, as, as bad as it looks, she is going to take a step towards God's faithfulness. She's going to go back home. But I still don't think she's got a very, she's not very optimistic about how all this is going to turn out because she tells her daughter-in-law, listen, whatever obligation you think you have to me, it's done. You need to go home. You've got people here. You've got family. You're still young enough. You could get married again. This could turn out well for you, right? And so Orpah, she hears this and she's like, phew, so glad you said that because let's be honest. Like I'm looking at all this and I'm like, yikes, right? So she leaves or like Grace Marie said week one of this, she's gone, Right? She's out of there. Ruth, though, she's stubborn. And she won't go anywhere. But she pledges herself to her mother-in-law, to Naomi. And she famously says, listen, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Trevor unpacked this a bit last week. It's such a picture of, of, of this Hebrew word and really what the theme of the entire book of Ruth is about, hesed. It's God's loving kindness, God's unwavering faithfulness. And so they, they travel back to Israel and they, they arrive in Bethlehem, where Naomi's family's from, around the time of the barley harvest. And now Ruth, in order to take care of herself and her mother-in-law, she immediately goes to the fields to glean. Y'all say glean. Now gleaning is something that God had the people put in place so that they, they, they could take care of folks who find themselves in situations like Ruth and Naomi people who who don't have enough, people who can't provide for themselves. And basically, this is how it worked. Farmers were told that they they should not harvest the edges or the corners of their field, but they were to leave it there for the poor, for the folks who did not have enough. And they also told them, when, when you harvest your fields, don't go back over them a second time. Whatever you drop or whatever you don't get on the first pass, leave it there for the less fortunate. It's a powerful reminder. You know what God expects the community, the people, to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. You're all aware of that, right? This comes straight from God. So this is what Ruth is doing. 
she goes to the field of this man named Boaz where she's gleaning. Now, Boaz has heard about Ruth. And he's really impressed with her faithfulness, that this Moabite woman would stay so committed, so loyal to her Israelite mother-in-law that she's back here with her. She's making sure that she's being provided for. He is just blown away by this. And so he decides to take care of her. And he tells his workers to watch out for her, make make sure nobody messes with her while she's out there gleaning the fields. And he even tells them, when you're harvesting, you know what, Leave, leave a bit more behind. Don't gather all that grain. Leave some more behind where you know she's going to be gleaning. And so Ruth comes home after this, and she's excited. She can't believe that Boaz is being this kind to her and starts telling Naomi all about it. But when Naomi hears this name Boaz, she starts connecting the dots. And she realizes that Boaz is actually uh, a relative of her family. So she starts to devise this plan. She gets a little schemy here. She tries to figure out a way in which she can get Ruth to go and present herself to Boaz so that he will step in and get more involved, that he will come in and help them out. Now, she's taking advantage of another cultural practice that God had instructed the people to put in place. It's known as the kinsman redeemer. Now, the easiest way to think about this is sort of like like that rich uncle. Y'all have one of those? It was like the guy who just has connections, he's well off, he knows how to take care of business, right? And if somebody in the family has a problem, this is the one that they go to. Y'all have, I'm not talking about the crazy uncle, right? I got one of those two. I had like an eccentric uncle. I won't call him crazy. He's eccentric. He's, he used to buy us like, I remember one Christmas, he bought us Viking helmets, all the boy cousins for Christmas, Viking helmets and a little pocket knife. We thought it was the coolest thing ever, right? I'm not talking about him, rabbit trail. Talking about the wealthy uncle, the one who takes care of business. This is the kinsman redeemer. He would have been a male relative who had both the privilege and the responsibility of stepping in and helping out a family member when they were in crisis. And so Naomi says, Ooh, I got an idea. I'm going to send you back to Boaz, which gets her all dressed up, gets her smelling good, looking nice. And in chapter three, Ruth goes to Boaz and presents herself to him and says, Hey, listen, step into our story, be our kinsman redeemer. Take care of us. And once again, Boaz is blown away. He's blown away by her audacity that she would do this and her loyalty. And he, he commits himself, okay, I'm going to do this. However, Boaz knows that there is another person who's actually in line to be asked first to do this. And he wants to, according to protocol, this person needs to be presented with the opportunity first, which tells me, I think this is great, tells me Boaz has done his homework. Right? Boaz has checked into this. He's already been thinking about it, which I think confirms what Trevor shared with us last week, that Boaz had like a crushy crush on Ruth, right? He's checking her out. He's got some plans of his own, right? So that's what Boaz says. Let let me talk to this guy first. If he says no, then I'll tell you what, I'll step in. That's where our story picks up in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So he goes to the gate. He knows it's a matter of time in a city. He's going to come through the gate, and when he does, I'm going to talk to him. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. 
But if you won't, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, I love how he does this. He's kind of like keeps it quiet and then he like drops this bomb on him. Then Boaz says, on the day you buy the land, by the way, from Naomi, you will also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So again, how this goes down is Boaz goes to this guy and says, listen, you are next in line. Naomi's in trouble. Do you want to step in and buy this land from her? Right? And at first, this sounds like a great investment. It's a great idea because Naomi, she's old. She's been around for a while. Chances of her getting remarried, having any kids, not very good. So you do this for her. You buy the land back. You give her the proceeds. You let her live there. Take care of herself. Well, then she dies. Guess what? You get the land. It's yours, right? Oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that. Then Boaz goes, well, there's one other thing. If you do this, you're also going to have Ruth to take care of as well. And immediately, it's not such a good idea anymore, is it? He's trying to back out. He's trying to get out of it. And he says, if I do this, it could danger my own estate. And he's telling the truth. In a way, that's true. Because where he was not commanded, he didn't have to technically marry Ruth. He didn't have to do that. But let's say he did. She's a foreigner. She's from Moab. It's frowned upon heavily. <laughs> but then at the same time, Ruth, she's young. And apparently she's good looking. And so there's still a chance that she could get remarried again. And if she does get remarried and she has a child, that first child, guess what? They get a stake in the inheritance. They get a piece of the pie. And now suddenly it's complicated. And this other kinsman redeemer says, nope, you know what? Bad investment. I don't want to do this. I'm not sticking my neck out. You can have it. You think Boaz, though, the whole time, he's like secretly hoping this is going to happen, right? I can like see him the whole time with his poker face on. You know, like, and then as soon as the guy says, nope, I don't want it, he's like, yes, right? He's like high five and chest bumping his buddies. See, whereas his other redeemer sees it as a bad investment, not Boaz, and Boaz steps up in front of everybody and says, you know what? On this day, I'm going to step in. I'm going to be the redeemer. And not only that, I'm going to take Ruth as my wife. Whoop. Whoop. There you go. <laughs> yes. Trained y'all well. What I love, though, is that in this story, this other, other redeemer, he's not given a name, which is interesting because everybody else has a name in the story, right? They make sure to tell you their name, even if they don't really matter. This guy doesn't have a name. Here's where the Bible's being sassy. I love when the Bible gets sassy. If you look in the original language, how this guy's referred to as is so-and-so. It's so-and-so. It's what's-his-face. I like that. So where what's-his-face says Ruth is a bad investment, not Boaz. Boaz says Ruth is a good investment. This great ending comes by way of a good investment. And here's the first place I want us to park, just for a moment. Let's, let's hang out here for a bit. I've got a question I want to ask you. I need you to be honest. When has so-and-so, when has what's-his-face made you feel like a bad investment? So I bring this up, I've been thinking about this, and it's like we, we live in a culture where, man, the lens through which we look at the world is like this economic lens. We look at everything through like this lens of economics. We look at it through like a bad investment or a good investment mentality. Is this a for-profit investment or is this a for-loss investment? That influences a lot of what we do. 
The choices that we make, the people we interact with has everything to do, honestly, with well, what's in it for me. How does this come back to impact me? Is this a for-profit investment or a for-loss investment? Is this a good investment or a bad investment? I mean, you, you hear this term, networking, right? Which on the one hand, great idea. It's important if you're going to get anywhere in business. I get that. But at the same time, there's something about it's kind of ugly where you leverage relationships for the sake of a personal gain, right? And then people, you, you know this. You have people in your life, like they show up when they need something. Where were they, where were they before that? Like every time they're around, you just think it's only a matter of time before they ask you for something. You know what I'm talking about? And so this way of seeing the world, this for economic lens, this for-profit, for-loss mentality, it's really easy for folks to feel like a means to an end. That's it. I'll never forget somebody telling me, make sure you hold doors open for people. Great idea. But then they said this, because if you don't, they're going to remember you. And you don't want that to come back and bite you down the road. And I'm like, that's why we hold doors open for people. What happened to chivalry, right? What happened to just doing it because it's the right thing to do? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Do you, do, you, do you experience any of this in your everyday life? And I would say that not only does this way of seeing the world impact the way we interact with other people, but you know what? It also impacts the way we see ourselves. Because this, this way of seeing the world, this economic lens, this for-profit, for-loss, good investment, bad investment, it's so easy for you and I to get our sense of worth and value from what we're able to achieve, from what we're able to accomplish or accumulate, from where we are compared to where everybody else is. I mean, this is what ultimately happens. I mean, very rarely do we, do we feel good about what we have. We feel good about what we have compared to what somebody else doesn't have. Or we feel like we're doing well if we feel like we're doing better than everybody else. I mean, moment, moment of complete brutal honesty. I was trying to figure out, what's it look like for me right now? Here's what it looks like. I just recently released a book, published a book. This is something that I wanted to do for, for years, right? I poured a lot of time and effort and energy into this. I just wanted to write a book. And so you would think that once that book was finished, that I would feel what? Oh, man, this is great. I got a book out there. You know what my first feeling was? Insecurity. Right away. I couldn't just be like, man, I can't believe God, God gave me the opportunity to do this. I feel great about what I said. I was immediately thinking about, you know what? Nobody's going to read it. And if they read it, they're not going to like it. What in the world? It's like, can I at least get 15 minutes to just be like, wow, this is sweet. No, immediately it was like, eh, forget this. You probably have something in your life like that you can relate to. There's somebody you're around that brings out insecurity in you like crazy because they got more than you do. Maybe it's your brother and sister you've been compared to your whole life. You never felt like you could measure up to them. I mean, this, this way of seeing the world works great. It works awesome. It works fine until we're rejected, until we're abandoned, until we fall flat on our face, until we don't hit the mark, until we can't jump over the bar, or until you and I are on the long end, wrong end of a comparison, then we're left feeling like we're a bad investment. Brene Brown is somebody I've learned so much from over the past couple of years. She's a, a renowned research psychologist, but at the same time, she's a great thinker and she's an amazing author. I recommend reading everything Brene Brown has put out. But she sort of got her, her start. What, what's kind of made her known is that she, she researches this topic of shame in our culture. That, that's what she does. And if you've heard of TED, TED Talks, those are great too, but they're uh, basically short little talks you can watch, people who are experts. Her TED Talk on shame is the, the most watched TED Talk of all time. Tells you something, doesn't it? 
something I think we all deal with. Well, she's got decades of research under her belt, hundreds of case studies. Here's how she defines shame. Shame is the fear of not belonging. That's what shame ultimately is. If people find out who I am, if people find out that they know what I've done, they know who I really am, they're not going to accept me. That's shame. Right? And she says, what fuels shame is this scarcity mentality. Tell me if this doesn't sound like this economic way of seeing the world. Scarcity mentality says something like this. I'm not blank enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not accomplished enough. Am I getting into y'all's lunch right now? Am I stepping into your living room? This has been kicking my rear end too. But here's what she said is that she looks at the people that she's interacted with. Typically, you fall into one or two camps. Either you are a person who lives with a strong sense of love and belonging. And for you, shame doesn't really show up. But in her her experience, there's not very many people like that. Or there's this other camp who live with this sense of fear without this strong sense of love and belonging. And here's what's crazy in her research. There was only one factor that separated the two. One factor. And it was the people who lived with a strong sense of love and belonging believed they were worthy of love and belonging to begin with. It's the only thing that separated them. Is that they were worthy of it to begin with. That they were a good investment. So I believe this is the word Boaz is speaking to Ruth. When he stands up in front of everybody, And he says, I don't see you as a foreigner. I don't see you as a widow. I see you as somebody who's worth investing in. You're a good investment. I would also argue that this is God's word to us in Jesus Christ. And this is the first word of the gospel. And please don't don't just come here and, and just hear this with your ears. My prayer is that you hear this at the core of who you are. Here's the first word of the gospel. You're loved and accepted by God. You are loved and accepted by God, despite all the reasons you can come up with why you shouldn't be. Tough luck. God loves you. You're accepted. In the midst of all that, there's nothing you can do about it. And I am convinced, you're going to hear this from me a lot up here. I'm sorry if you get tired of it, but I'm going to keep saying it. If we want to experience real change in our lives, real lasting change, we are going to have to open ourselves up to this in a very real way. And not only that, we're going to have to keep coming back to it. Because what's crazy to me is where Boaz keeps inviting Ruth further and further in, doesn't he? Keeps welcoming her further and further in. She starts off as a widow gathering sheaves out in the field, and now he wants her to be his wife. God extends the same invitation to each and every one of us. But too many of us, we're still out there collecting sheaves. We've done something wrong, and we think we have to pay penance for it, and we have to abuse ourselves. We can't accept the good news of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do that. Somebody better say amen to that. Man, you're welcome, you're invited, you're accepted, you're loved by God, bottom line. And if you're going to get anywhere, if you're going to experience any sense of good ending, you're going to have to embrace that, not just once, but every single day of your life. I recently heard of a modern-day Ruth story. It's about a ballerina named Michaela the Prince. She's one of the most famous ballerinas in the world right now. She dances for the Dutch National Ballet. Big deal. Really big deal. But her story doesn't start there. You know her story starts? Sierra Leone, West Africa. Small village. At the age of three, her father was killed by rebel soldiers. Not long after that, her mom died of starvation, trying to keep her daughter alive. She would give her her own food. And so Michaela went and lived in an orphanage. In that orphanage, she experienced tons of abuse. 
mainly because she had a skin condition where white spots would show up on her skin. And they even labeled the kids at this orphanage from one to 26. They numbered you based on how likely it was that you were gonna be adopted. Michaela was always number 26. They called her the devil's child. And one day she was outside, she was playing and, and a gust of wind blew this old copy of Dance Magazine up against the bars at the orphanage. On the front of that magazine was a picture of a ballerina in a pink tutu. She'd never seen such a thing in her life. She even said this, she said, it was this beautiful creature, like a fairy, like a light I had never seen. And here's where she reminds me of Ruth. She committed in her heart, one day she's gonna be a ballerina. Think about that, the audacity. This little girl who has seen so much tragedy, who lives so far away from anything like that, decides, you know what, one day I'm gonna be a ballerina. That's a Ruth. Now her Boaz came in the form of this middle-aged family from Atlanta, Georgia, who had decided that they wanted to adopt a young girl from Sierra Leone after two boys that they had adopted had died of AIDS. And the moment they met this little girl, they knew she was remarkable. Because the first thing she did when they picked her up is she pulled out this tattered old picture out of her ratty clothes and showed it to him as a picture of the ballerina. And then she started dancing around the, the, the hotel room on her tiptoes. And her mom even said that she went over to the luggage and she tore through it because she knew that somewhere in there, there was a pair of ballerina shoes. And that day, that family, they looked at her. You know what they did? They, did, they didn't see a, a refugee. They saw a ballerina. And they told her that day, one day you will dance. You will dance. I love what Michaela said about her adoption. She said, when I was adopted, I was given an incredible opportunity to be surrounded by so much love and to know what it is to be loved. Y'all, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It loves us into who we actually are. It sees us through all that stuff. And the first word is this, you are loved and accepted by God. You know what? That's enough. It's the truest thing I know. I just wonder how much would change if we actually believed that. If you look at all of your insecurities, your hangups, I guarantee you trace it to its roots, you don't believe that in some way, shape, or form. So what if the next time you find yourself that lump in your throat when you're around that person or in that setting because you're feeling insecure or you're feeling envious or you feel like you have to have something else or something more, what if in that moment you were to stop yourself and say, you know what, I'm a good investment. I'm loved by God. And you know what, that's enough. How much would change? See, the gospel invites you and I to identify with all the ways we find ourselves, like Naomi, like Ruth. But at the same time, the gospel invites you and I to be Boaz. Because this ending is great. It's a great ending. But it only happens because somebody gets involved. Somebody makes an investment. Somebody shows up. And it's Boaz. See, great endings only happen because people are willing to do the right thing. And here's the thing about Boaz. Boaz, in the story, he actually doesn't do anything that remarkable. I mean, if you think about some of the heroes that we celebrate, like he didn't find a cure to some disease. He didn't fend off some invading army. You know what Boaz did? He showed up. He did the right thing. And, and this whole concept of kinsman redeemer wasn't even his idea in the beginning with. God had already told the people, here's what I want you to do. When you see somebody in need, I want you to be there for them. But remember, this story takes place in what's known as the time of the judges. 
And the scripture tells us over and over again, during the time of the judges, there was no king. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do. Everybody did what they saw fit in their own eyes. So the remarkable thing about Boaz is this. At a time where everybody was doing their own thing, Boaz did the right thing. Boaz stepped up. He did the right thing. You know, the world that we live in, it's beautiful. I'm telling you, this world is amazing. It's full of awesome people. It's full of wonderful things. But at the same time, it's really messed up. And there are things that happen here all the time that honestly shouldn't happen. I mean, there are people who die all over the world. People who die because they can't get a drink of clean water. They can't get enough food. There are people who, who go to bed in our own community, right around us. They go to bed every night without any food. Same time, there are, there are little children, there are kids who are coerced and manipulated and forced into human trafficking, sexual slavery. There are people who are marginalized and oppressed simply because of the color of their skin. I want to ask you two questions in light of that. Number one, does that bother you? Like, does that, does that bother you? Because it should. Second question is this, what are you going to do about it? Because I, I am convinced that, that, that these awful things happen in the world and continue to happen in the world because there aren't enough people who are willing to step up and do the right thing. Isaiah 59 says it like this. These are troubling words. It says, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. If I'm honest, more often than I'd like to admit, you know who I am? I'm so-and-so. I'm what's-his-face. I'm the guy weaseling out of an opportunity to step in and get involved. I'm the one coming up with all sorts of excuses why I don't have time for that person or why I shouldn't be the one to make the sacrifice to meet that need or, or why it wouldn't be a good idea for me to get involved. That's who I am most of the time. I'm so-and-so. I'm what's-his-face. I can get pretty creative when it comes to all the ways I justify myself from stepping up and getting involved. I don't know if you heard about this, though, this past week, but in Panama City, Florida, 45 people, complete strangers, formed this human chain that stretched from the beach into the ocean in order to rescue nine swimmers who got swept out in this riptide. Many of them were little kids who weren't strong enough to, to fight the current. 45 strangers did this. And the whole thing started because there was a husband and wife who saw the, the, the struggling swimmers and also saw one of the parents in distress. And they felt themselves say, somebody should do something about this. And they realized somebody was them. And so they went around, they grabbed all these people. Next thing you know, there's this chain extending out into the water and these nine swimmers were all rescued. It's an incredible story. But I have to wonder how many people that day played the part of so-and-so. Played the part of, played the part of what's-his-face. Who looked down and said, oh, it's awful. It's awful. Somebody should do something about that. You're right. Somebody's you. First John says this to us. It says, if anyone has material possessions, and you know, sometimes it's about that. Other times it's not. But basically, if you have the means to meet a need, if you have the ability to show up and step in, and you see a brother or sister in need, but you have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Ouch. That stings a little. See, following Jesus, let me make this really simple. Sometimes we make it really complicated. 
You know what it is? It's about leaning into the hard and holy things. It's about not just believing in the cross. It's about following Jesus' invitation to pick ours up and to live with our eyes wide open to the pain of the world and to not shrink back from it, but to lean into it, to go into those places and partner with Jesus and putting the pieces back together. It's about living your life for something more than your own self-preservation, your own comfort. I'm sick of being so-and-so. I'm tired of that. It's boring. And where, where are you going to get for that in the end of your days? A nice retirement? Blech. I'm sure that's important. But if that's all my life amounts to, when I look back on it, man, I was comfortable. No, thanks. I want to bleed. I want to bleed. What does this look like for you? Because great ending, somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to do the right thing. I mean, maybe for you, the next time that person calls, you know what I'm talking about, don't side-click them. Answer the phone. Maybe the next time you feel that nudge, right, to lean in, to get involved, don't dismiss it. Don't blow it off. Step into it. Maybe the next time you hear, this would be great. The next time you hear yourself thinking or saying something like, man, that's awful, fill in the blank, should get involved. What if you put your name in that blank? How about that? Let's start there. But great endings happen as a result of people doing the right thing, which brings me to something else I notice about great endings, is that great endings are ultimately wrapped up in greater purposes. Great endings are ultimately wrapped up in greater purposes. We've brought this up every week of the series so far, but it's worth mentioning again is that Ruth and Boaz, they eventually, they get married, they have a kid. That, that son grows up, they, his name's Obed. Obed gets married, he has a son. That son's name's Jesse. Jesse grows up, has a whole bunch of sons, the youngest of which is David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. And we know that the line doesn't stop there. But on this side of it, we know that who? Traces their heritage back to David. Jesus, the Christ the savior of the world. Now, I love both of these things sit next to each other, right? On the one hand, Ruth is about the healing, the restoration of this one family who had been through so much, right? It's beautiful. But at the same time, this story is about what God is doing on a larger scale, about how God is incorporating what's going on with this family, not just for their own good, but also for the whole nation of Israel and even bigger than that. It's caught up in God's plan, redemptive plan for the whole world. See, great endings are ultimately caught up in greater purposes. And here's why this matters on a personal level, is that often when it comes to the mess in our lives, the dysfunction in our lives, the pain in our lives, we typically get so fixated on God fixing that, right? Isn't that often our prayer? God, fix this. But what if? What if we could move past that and instead to also begin to pray the prayer, God, use this? God, use this. What if we could somehow move past demanding God to pay us back? And what if instead we could start looking for ways to pay it forward? And, and it's not that our personal healing doesn't matter to God. It certainly does. Believe me, it does. And it's an important part of what God wants to do in the world. He wants to make things right. But I have found that there is a deeper level of healing. When we allow God to take our worst and to use it for his best, to be a part of what he's doing in the world. Because I know folks, and maybe you know folks like this too, they've been through something really hard. 
either something they did or something that happened to them. And by the grace of God, they got through it. But I'm not sure they ever really got over it. Because when it's quiet, it still haunts them. Or when they're in certain settings around certain people, it all comes back. You know what I'm talking about. It still haunts them. Or it's this secret. They think they have to keep quiet about it because there's still shame involved. And so you know what? Ultimately, in some ways, it's still controlling them. But what if it could be brought out into the light? What if that thing that causes so much pain and it is secretive and it's quiet, what if somehow you could bring it out into the light and instead it could become a testimony to what God's done in your life? This is why I think the recovery community got it, got it right. If you're familiar with, with recovery community folks working through substance abuse, you work the 12 steps, guess what the 12 step is? you go back and you sponsor somebody else to the program because they realize that you're not really recovered until you're using what once used you to help other people. What's this look like for you? Because, you know, I think it's easy when, when bad things happen to think it's the end of the story, but we place our God in a, in, a, in a God who performs resurrection. And resurrection declares when you think it's over, it's really just begun. Last point, I'll wrap it up with this, and the band will come out and lead us through one more time of worship. But, you know, ultimately, great endings often have subtle beginnings. And think about where Ruth, Ruth ends. It's great, right? You know where Ruth starts? A woman in a really bad place. She's not all sunshine and rainbows here. She's Mara. But you know what? She's heard word that God is being faithful. And she takes a step in that direction. That's where the story starts. I can imagine that you're here today, some of you, and you know what? Your story has not turned out the way you thought it would. You're a part of something. This is not what you signed up for. This is not what you saw coming. And it's really easy to think this is the end of your story. I want to encourage you, during this time of worship, do me a favor. Be here and open yourself up to this God who looks like Jesus. This God who performs resurrection, who has this way of taking bad endings and turning them into to, to new beginnings. But at the same time, I want to ask you this. What's it look like for you in that place, in that Mara, whatever that is, to take a step towards God's faithfulness, to begin to move in that direction? Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe you need to ask for help. Maybe it's a conversation with somebody else that's long overdue. Or maybe there's something or someone you need to get out of your life. You got to cut it off. Or perhaps it's a new habit that you need to pick up, whatever it is. Spend this time doing business with God. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for not standing at a distance, but being a God who steps in to our story, who gets involved. And I just pray that right now for all the people in the room, maybe there's somebody out here today who's been, who's been gathering sheaves when you've been welcoming them in the whole time. Call them home to yourself. Maybe there's somebody in this room who, is having a hard time envisioning what a good ending looks like. Or draw close to them. Perform some resurrection. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.